So hello, uh, welcome to uh, Pharmacy Practice Podcast. Haven't done haven't done a podcast for, gosh, I don't know, a long time, um, six nine months. Um, a lot of self censorship going on in recent times, uh, but maybe we'll come on to talk about that. Um, listen, today we've got um, a really eminent pharmacist. Um, I'm going by his Twitter account here, so it's uh, a Northumbrian exiled in darkest Cheshire pharmacist, in brackets, a nice guy, cricketer, lover, not a fighter, oh, and Bruce. So we've got Jonathan Underhill on the line. Jo- what what does the last uh, bit mean, Jonathan? So, hi, guys. Um, so, Bruce it is. So I'm, a, I'm a massive, completely obsessional Bruce Springsteen fan. I think he's a wonderful man. I love his music. So yes, it's it's Bruce Springsteen. I've got you. You're a man of Not taste. Bruce. Uh, that, one, one of my other great passions is Newcastle United Football Club, and but not Steve Bruce. <laughs> well, speaking of Newcastle United, I have uh, we went on a school trip when I uh, back in 19 Oatcake, and we went to St James's Park. So I have been there. I've been on the hallowed turf. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, um, yeah, I had a season ticket for many years when I when um, growing up. Um, it's a uh, yeah. I was, I'm still hopeful that the good times will come back to to St James's Park. Um, yeah, I mean, just talking about football. Obviously, last night that we're recording this, the day after football didn't come home in the end, and so I'm still reeling from the almost the inevitable disappointment <laughs> of, of all of that, like the rest of the the English nation. But, um, yeah, there well, we go. I mean, I mean, I've I've got a few things to say to you about that, Jonathan. Um, number one. Try supporting Northern Ireland for 37 years, right? That's number one. Okay, so just just manage your expectations, please. Okay, yeah. right. And number two is I I I I really enjoy watching England. I do. I really do. I'm not being sort of woke here, but I really don't. I'm not a fan of this. You know, putting uh, opposition flags in your profile and stuff. You know, there was a lot of Italian flags up in Scotland last night. I, I'm not a fan. It's just not. It's just not cricket. It's not not yeah. that's not up my street. So, but yeah. and, and I was gonna I was gonna say that that England team. I don't know what you think, but it's it's probably the best England team I've seen them play in my lifetime. Well, I, I'm not. I think they're. I think the Italian 1990 team was probably on paper a, a better team. But what I will say about this team, and this is the the, the, the real sort of. Um, sort of, and I have lots of admiration for for Gareth Southgate. I think he's a epitome of a a man who's been to, through the the pits of despair with what happened in Euro '96. Um, he's had a good look at himself. He's been introspective. He's talked to people. He's developed, and I think he's become a real um, a great leader. And I think the team see that, and I think they see something that in, in themselves in, in him that they are inspired by and want to and want to be better people because of that not just better footballers because I don't think it's necessarily the best football team the best English football team I've seen but I do think they are the best group of of players that I've seen in all in all aspects and I suspect what will happen as a result of this I hope what happens as a result of this 
they they go away and they take confidence from it and they develop and grow even more as a uh, as a collective. And you know what, Jonathan, I think there's there's something in there for all of us, whether we're you know and, and the teams that we work in professionally, uh, whether it's as, as pharmacists or you, you know your home life or whatever. There's, there's something to be seen in that. And, that, and actually, that's what you want from your 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 your, your sports people. You want, and I know that there's, there's a lot said about you know, these young people shouldn't be role models. Well, they are role models, and 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 I think they're actually by and large very good role models. And I don't think Southgate would have anyone on his team who who didn't buy into that. And I think that's a really, really good thing, good positive thing. Yeah, you've you've preempted my next question. What can farmers, you know, the pharmacist profession learn from Southgate? But I think you've covered that. I think I I like Southgate. I think um, I'd like uh, what would I say? I think he he has he has taken a move to the middle ground, and I like that. Yeah. You know, and this comes this comes by. I've I've become very nervous, sort of operating in the, in the public eye um, in the last year or so. I think the the, mm. the culture war the culture wars are here, and they're and they're in they're in they're in pharmacy as well. They're you know they're they're raging, and I think yeah. I like what I like about Southgate is that he allows everyone he comes into contact with to be who they want to be, yeah. and and and. I, I would like to think that in pharmacy, um, some of our leadership would stop being so tribal and, mm-hmm. you know, clearly sort of furthering the aims of the organisation that they represent. I think I think we really need to get past that as a profession, and 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 they need to. I, I would like them to sort of be a bit like Southgate and and just give people that you know do that leadership sleight of hand where you can. Um, you could give people the the space and room just to be who they want to be. I'm I'm minded to to think of um, you know the Good Friday Agreement in Northern Ireland. So you know one of the one of the things that that the politicians managed to achieve back then, Jonathan, was that they 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 created space for the for the various populations and sides of the population to be who they wanted to be. So like I'm Northern Irish, right? So I can. I now have, at the moment, because of the Good Friday Agreement, I feel I've got permission to be proudly Irish, I've got an Irish mm-hmm. passport. My family is a Presbyterian family, so Protestant, um, very middle ground. But I'm also, I also feel proud to be British, and I also yeah. feel, nor- I also feel Northern Irish. So I'm, I'm one of these people that's all three. So, you know, taking that back to pharmacy and to Southgate, it's like. We don't have to be painted into our corners of 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 extremism. You know, it's it's about. I'm so, I'm on my soapbox now, like already. But it's 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 about not leaving people behind. It's about making people feel welcome. It's about spotting the person that doesn't feel welcome, and yeah. and and talking to you know talking to their your you know the people you come into contact with, talking to their inner self, right, and and subconsciously or consciously telling them that they've got room to be who they want to be no, um, what do you think no de- definitely i mean i thought i thought one of the one of the things that really moved me about what southgate said early on in the, in the tournament was um i think it was when england had beaten ukraine um 
and it was a great performance, 4-0. And he came out and he said, you know, the most the, the most important people, I want to thank the three people who didn't make the squad yeah. today. And he said, you know, it would be really easy for them to mope around and feel sorry for themselves. And and that would actually detract, it would, it would produce negative energy for the group. And I just thought, wow, he's really thought about that. And he's gone, you know, I need to make these people feel that they're an important part of this whole group. And 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 you see that in your work situations, don't you? Some people who perhaps are certainly, you know, within pharmacy teams, sometimes you see people who are really charismatic and obviously lead the lead the team. Um, but there's also people who are quietly effective and quietly efficient and it's about making them feel part of this as well and not feel on the outside um of this i thought again just to use that analogy i think there's there's lots there that we can all learn from just have, have a word with the quiet person the, the quiet sort of um person who isn't an extrovert naturally but yeah. you know make them an important part what, what are their strengths what how can they develop themselves to um, do what they're good at to be part of that that collective for the, for, for the team. Um, brilliant, really good, really good. Yeah, totally agree. The, the other thing I liked about, uh, yeah, I like what you said about Southgate there. I like, the other thing I liked was um, he, I don't know if you watched him, but he didn't celebrate when Italy missed. No. I love that. Classy. Yeah. Really classy. He's a classy so, man. He is a classy yeah, he is. man. We'll learn from him. Yeah. So um, you're also a classy man. Uh, some 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 sources say. Sources say. Uh, really? Yeah, we better we, <laughs> we better speak about some pharmacy stuff though. So what's what what's happening in your um, world at the minute, Jonathan? Yeah, I mean, there's lots happening at Nice. Um, I mean, when the pandemic hit, it was uh, it was like it, it was the usual sort of initial response of everyone working from home. Office was closed. Uh, what do we do here? Um, and we were asked to produce some guidance very quickly on 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 COVID and on how best healthcare professionals and the public can help deal with some some of the issues. Um, and it was it was quite an interesting response, really, because Nice usually takes a long time to do stuff. So we mm -hmm. the the usual time frame for us producing a a guideline is anything between eighteen months and three years. Um, and then we got a call from NHS England Department of Health saying, right, can you produce some guidance on COVID, but you've got a week to do it. And so what we did was we all got together and said, right, what can we do in a week? We can't make it perfect, but the, I'm sure we can help to do something. Um, so we did that and we ended up doing 23 guidelines on, on, on COVID within um, the first three or four months of the, of the pandemic. Um, and as a result of that, it's made us think, introspectively about how we can improve nice processes to make them more agile and a bit and a bit quicker to, to produce useful recommendations so we've we've, we've got a, a new strategy that sort of reflects some of that um, and, and I've been working hard with other people within nice to just think about how we can how we can integrate guidance how we can make it more agile more responsive to new important evidence when it comes out but also putting our recommendations in the context of other stuff so they don't just sit on their own. Um, I mean, we've got lots of examples where we have a clinical guideline and then four or five technology appraisals that don't actually 
sit together and sometimes they actually say different things and it's like as a, as a user as a clinician or as a as a patient it's like well hang on which one do i follow here it's not clear to me yeah. it's, it's a massive job we've got on but we, we've started down that that road of trying to try to integrate our content and as i say make it make it more agile and more responsive so I've got, yeah go on sorry no it's, sorry no it's i was just going to say it's 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 been it's been fascinating um obviously well fascinating is a way to put it isn't it it's been disastrous fascinating disruptive um all of the above really the the pandemic but i, I don't know i don't know if you, in your position you, you want to answer this question but i, I i've or, or muse the conversation i i've sort of wondered have we in the health service particularly and and the companies that service the health service have we existed in a bit of a a lazy economy for for quite a few decades really have we done the same thing that we've always done um and and the, the you know to take that sort of thought forward you know the pandemic has put a, a tremendous shock into the system and it's really from my point of view it's it's sort of really stripped back a lot of stuff in business and i mean we're i'm i suppose i speak as someone right at the front end of uh a business that that is full of jeopardy you know if we if we don't if we don't do a good job uh, like we die that's that's pretty much that's pretty much how we roll and we have to deliver excellent services um coming on to speaking about training obviously excellent you know that that these, these things have to be top notch or else people won't pay anymore and i i don't know have how do you how does it make you feel that it's taken a pandemic um to see some of these changes jonathan yeah well th but that's what history tells us sometimes you need to you can be moving in a certain direction and then all of a sudden you, you almost need some a, a crisis to to speed that up and to to to, produce, to become the catalyst for change that that would have happened anyway probably but was speeded up as a result of a, a, a disaster happening. I think, I mean, I, I mentioned before about, you know, when, when the pandemic hit and everyone was working from home. I mean, what happened there was that things like Zoom and MS Teams just almost serendipitously just came online. Everyone had to become very competent in how to do video conferencing and have their IT kit sorted out. And companies had to sort out their IT kit very quickly. Otherwise, they realized that people weren't going to be able to work. Um, so, I mean, you know, the book on good things to come out of the COVID pandemic is, is probably quite a short one, but there are some good things in there that, that have happened as a result of the pandemic. And one of the other things, just in, in you know, my world, in terms of, the, you know, the, the evidence-based medicine, the recovery trial. So this is, you know, the, the trial that was that was set up um, in out of Oxford um, when the pandemic hit was a very pragmatic look at how we can use real world evidence, real world data to inform recommendations about what good practice would look like and what good interventions would look like and the interventions importantly that don't work. Um, and I think there's loads of lessons in, in that in terms of trial design and generation of evidence that has massive repercussions for how we construct guidance and then how we, we act as practitioners and clinicians. To, to to how we you know how we how we use medicines and other interventions in in, in, in the best way. I, I honestly think that's that's going to be a game changer for how we 
construct guidance and how we how the you know the research community responds to that going forward so i say going forward i shouldn't say going forward it's one of those one of those phrases i get in trouble for saying but yes <laughs> i think it's um, <laughs> um yeah yeah it's, um no, it's a, it's it's interesting, and 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 I think um, yeah, it, it needs to be said like COVID was bad. Um, it was it was really bad. Um, and 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 yeah, I suppose I'm I'm scratching around for positives here, Jonathan. You know, um, but but it has you know economically. I think I don't mean economically in money terms. I mean like in the purest sense of the word economics. You know, it's it's been an interesting um, period really, and. Um, yeah, I think I think as pharmacists and and, and the wider healthcare um, situation, we would be daft not to sort of try and look at that and and understand yeah. uh, what's going on. So I mean, just just to come back to that, I think you know, talking about the tribalism sort of thing as well that we talked about earlier as well. I think in, in terms of the, yeah. the response of the pharmacy profession to the pandemic was sensational. I thought in terms of you know, community pharmacists in terms of um, what happened within hospital pharmacists. I mean, some of my friends you know, basically went and set up the Nightingale hospitals in, in, in London and, you know, fantastic sort of, you know, call to arms, if you, if you like, for let, let's let's get this done and let's get, the, this, let's get this done quickly. The vaccination programme, the response to pharmacists for that was, was fantastic as well. Um, and it disappoints me slightly that you see certain professional leaders saying oh well you know we did our, our particular community pharmacy was was really good and was really visible here whereas other parts of primary care ran off and hid i mean i just think that's really disappointing when you get when you get people saying things like that because they didn't go off and run off and hid they, they were struggling to cope with demand in a really really unusual situation you know, I, I think there's, there's lots, lots that we can learn here, and maybe we need Gareth Southgate sort of approach to how can we learn from this as a collective. Well, I, I think I think we need, you know, I think that that comment that you're speaking about, um, it was either very clever or very stupid. Um, I'll leave I'll leave the audience to work out which, um, because it certainly generated a lot of PR, and, there, and, yeah. and there's they say there's no such thing as bad PR. It, it absolutely this this tribal culture worry thing just you know they're shot we're open we're better they're worse technicians yeah. pharmacists it just does yeah. my head in jonathan honestly i'm i'm absolutely sick of it and actually um that that's a lot of why pharmacy and practice has gone quiet because you know i was pharmacy practice started off with with me being a bit hacked well more than a bit hacked off for being marked as not perform at, at at a certain large pharmacy business and um you know that that rating was overturned you know I'm, you know five years later i'm really struggling to let it go as you can tell but it really yes. hacked me off um <laughs> so that's that's why i started writing and the first bit was very self-indulgent you know quite embarrassed looking back on jonathanlaird.com and all the rest of it but it was cathartic for me and looking back it was a process i had to cool. go through and then pharmacy and practice with ross was great crack doing it with ross and um you know we made it about other people and then i took that on myself and we tried to make it well i tried to make it all about other people and you know about letting people tell their stories but even that was becoming like toxic and and difficult um 
and I yeah. and I came to I came to a conclusion before Christmas last year. I thought, God, am I am I actually causing more damage to, to to my little corner of the profession here, or or am I helping? And and quite honestly, I I I, I, I think I might have been, you know, admittedly, I might have been um, sort of engaged in that race to the bottom, them yeah. and us, you know, and and that has to stop. You know that absolutely has to stop in our profession. The pandemic has shown us that. It's stuff. The stuff that's going on is just too important. You know. Yeah. Um, I th I think and I, go back to your the the comment about primary care and stuff. The wider conversation around that is. Uh, I welcome your thoughts on this in a minute, but um, I think we're reaping what we sowed as a profession, as a pharmacist profession. We are being run by the multiples, unfortunately. Now, with that comes some benefits, but the real downside, the thing that worried me about that statement that he made was the conflation between a, a large multinational corporate body and our profession. That's what made me that's what made me livid, because the public, in many occasions, they, they will only access the pharmacist profession through said one of the one of the retailers you know and that to me that that was quite that was the shocking bit for me not not i mean it was annoying what he said obviously about primary care being shut which is clearly a stupid daft thing to say but um i think there's there's actually more much there's a much more nuanced conversation to have about that and um i was that is inflation point that i was worried about around uh conflating you know, a large multiple with with our profession. Um, yeah. you know what you think, John? Well, it was always thus. Um, I mean, I've been in the pharmacy profession. I'm 52, 53 in a couple of time. I've been in the pharmacy profession 30 odd years now. And I remember when I came into the profession, that was that was there was that tension between hmm. the profession and the large the large multiples and. Um, I see that relationship or that situation improving slightly <clears throat> with the advent of pharmacists prescribing and pharmacists being employed within primary care um, and you know pharmacists you know, having roles across the, the different systems but it's still largely certainly within community pharmacy in England anyway and I don't, I don't know the situation as well in Scotland as as I do in England. But in England, it is still dominated by the by the large multiples. Um, and uh, yeah, yeah. Who knows if that will ever change? I mean, it, it, it's an interesting one with the. Anna, you spoke about this with 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 Jamie Gimmo and Steve on the All Apothecary podcast, mm. but it was the. You know, the notion of Amazon as a player coming into this situation <clears throat> and the supply function that's traditionally been done by community pharmacists potentially being done by some an organization like Amazon and what does that do to the dynamic what does that do to the the profession what does that do most importantly to the relationship between pharmacists and their patients and the public First, and you spoke very eloquently on this. I think this could potentially be a real force for good 
for the profession to to actually separate the supply from the the clinical services that are provided and and my great passion is around shared decision making and yeah. how people can have meaningful conversations with people about their choices um and i see pharmacists as being potentially showing great leadership here around medicine's choices that people have um separating it from the supply and and almost sometimes separating separate it from the prescribing decision as well um yeah having that conversation about what's important to that person at this point in time and what choices they have so yeah yeah and, and it's interesting to see what the view of the multiples would be you know the the, the large the, the large pharmacy companies on that when someone like amazon comes into the game but johnny i th i think you know i'm a great believer in in, in taking things back to the market because we all exist in the market on whether we like it or not we can dress it up how we like it but you yeah. know organizations and individuals act usually to avoid jeopardy or to benefit yeah. themselves and usually benefiting themselves means money I, yeah. I, I think that is a that decoupling the supply from services is is a conversation that needs to be had. I'll tell you why I think the market has already decided Yes. That, this, this is this is what explains, you know, the, the 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 rapid migration, in my opinion, of pharmacists out of community pharmacy into, in brackets, primary care, um, mm. and and I think I think in many cases, they've been they've been oversold the dream. Mm -hmm. In some in some cases not, because it's a very different role. To, to be constructive and discuss what what I think needs to sort of change, I think, and and I don't I I welcome conversation with contractors about this because there'll be some in their tribes that just won't like what I'm about to say. But yeah. to be honest, who cares? Um, the the supply function has created um, a lazy economy in in community pharmacy. You know, mm -hmm. we have they've depended the contractor network has depended almost solely on one customer. And they are yeah. a customer. It's the NHS. Yeah. yeah. Um, and 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 I would question where has all the investment gone? You know, like over the years, there's been so much money has gone out of our profession by proxy through the network, and there's been a lot invested. It's not a black and white situation, but I think I do think we're at a point where at a a critical moment now where everyone wants. Everyone wants change, but no one wants to change around the prescribing agenda. And the contractors, I think the penny is dropping with them that they have to give up some of that. Um, I don't know what the right word for it is, but um, control over what happens in their pharmacy. In my opinion, if they, if if contractors don't give the, some autonomy back to pharmacists to become prescribers, develop new services, um, you know, do what we're trying to do, you know, train them up, become micro-credentialed in certain yeah. services that serve their local populations, then yeah. I, I can't see a future. And, and yeah, I agree with you on the Amazon thing. It, you know, the optimist in me thinks this is, this is the pandemic. This is the real pandemic moment for community pharmacy. Yes. Um, so yeah. don't know yeah don't know what have you had any other thoughts on that but 
Well, well, I, I mean, I think the other, <clears throat> the other thought is around the, the, the tension between access and equity. So one of the, well, the unique selling point of community pharmacy is you can walk into any, any setting in the high street and you can talk to a healthcare professional and that healthcare professional in the main will give you sensible, reasonable advice about about your choices and I think that's great however for someone like me I don't know what you think here but you know I've, I've, I've got a, 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 a busy a busy life um, if I wanted to seek healthcare advice I I actually don't feel that I want to walk into a high street pharmacy or, or, or go down go down to the shops where I live in a rural community it's you know five five miles from shop from the shops it would be much easier for me to be able to go on my phone or on my computer and have a video consultation with a high with, with, with a healthcare professional just to, again to discuss what I want to do uh, and I see that's still sort of a minority sport for most community pharmacists to offer that service to, to people but I think yeah. there's a real opportunity here. We're, again, with the pandemic, with people more people working from home rather than going from their daily commute into cities and towns to their place of work, it's about have, offering that convenience to people that says, right, well, you can speak to your healthcare professional via a video link or via text message or or, or whatever, and, and 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 do that. But then. As you say, it's like, well, so who's going to pay for that service? Then? Is it the individual? So you, I don't know, you pay ten pounds for each video consultation that you have, hmm. and then it's like, well, there's there is the inverse care law that comes in here, Julian Tudor Hart stuff, where where he says, you know, the the people who need to access healthcare the most, the poor and the vulnerable, are the ones who are least likely to do so. And if you then introduce a barrier that says, well, yeah, you can access your your healthcare professional on the high street via a video link, it'll cost you £10 per consultation, that's actually going to put off the poor and vulnerable from, from doing that. So it needs to be thought about in the moment and it needs to be part of the contractual service for community pharmacists, I think, to have some sort of um, way of being paid to produce that service, not on a pay-per-access point of view. So True, true. I, I take that point, but I, I, I would say it is a very interesting point, and I, I'm fully aware of that. Um, my, my caution around that sort of narrative mm. is that a bit like the migration of pharmacists into primary care, the market will decide. You know, what's happening post-pandemic is that in my in my observation, in my opinion, um, people are people who can afford it are migrating to the private sector because they can't um, they they maybe perceive they can't on every occasion get the service they wish. Now, look at look at a different sector. Look at education, the 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 homeschooling. You know the 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 coaching via Teams or or Zoom. Yeah. That market is absolutely booming, and that I, I worry about the same thing happening with healthcare. Um, I do take your point, but I think we need to be mindful that the market doesn't stay still. You know, yeah. the NHS can't just 
exist and and there is there is a portion of the population that are a bit um what would i say evangelical about about uh, the healthcare system in this country and and that's fine as long as it works um it, 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 it's, it's very complex, John Hunt, isn't it? It's it's very it is. difficult. It's massively complex. That's, that's why it's like, you know, it's, it's, it's no, no one's got the answers to all, all no. of this. You can't, and you can't fix it because it's complex. You can't fix complex problems. And people try and fix complex problems and you can't. You can just make them maybe a little bit better or sometimes a little bit worse, actually. By, by, but, but, I st but I still think, and, and you know, I think most people in the UK sign up to this. The, the the principle of the NHS, you know, you you will get the care you require to a certain extent, to a certain standard, free at the point of access. And other things, if you want a bit more and you want a bit better than than the the standard, which is still a very very good high level of service, then there is the opportunity for you to pay to access either more conveniently or in a better setting or, or, or whatever. But there needs to there still needs to be that principle in place where it's free, where you can access a, a good standard of, of service free at the point of access. And I guess my question to community pharmacists and, and to contractors would be, right, okay, well, how, how do we do that? Yeah. Or, you know, how, how do we do that in the future where you've got a potentially the supply function being taken away from you and being delivered by Amazon because of the convenience and the, and the and the scale that they can do that at, what's going to be left for, for, for community pharmacists to offer that unique service free at the point of access to people who require it the most? And and would would you be okay, Johnny? Or sorry, sorry, Jonathan. In case your mum's <laughs> listening, I promised I wouldn't call you Johnny. Sorry, <laughs> I've done it. Um, okay, <clears throat> uh, I'll edit that bit out. Um, yeah, so would you be okay with like, you know, you know, we use well, we're on a we're on a video call here, so we use GoToWebinar for our webinars. So there's a basic package, there's a middle package, and then there's a premium one. Yeah. Um, some, sometimes we're fortunate enough to have, you know, quite a few people attend, so I've had to go and buy the the top one because I wouldn't want to if I run a yeah. webinar, I don't I don't want to exclude, you know, I don't want to limit it to a hundred people, for example. Um, so is that principle acceptable for you in the health service because that that feels like a bit of a shift to me well but but it all de depends on what you define as being your 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 standard practice you know the 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 the, the, the services or the medicines or whatever that are deemed to be a reasonable cost and mm. standard for the nhs to deliver I mean, it's what it's what we do in nice when we do technology appraisals. Essentially, the question for a technology appraisal is: this new cancer medicine is this likely to be a cost-effective use of NHS resources? And if yes, then that should be made available to the person if the clinician clinician and the person think that that's the best choice for them at this point in time. So you have that basic minimum standard defined by NICE that says, right, these are the medicines that should be available for, for you for this condition. And that's fine. I, I, I don't think we should mess with that. If, if there is another medicine that comes out that 
where the, so we use this thing called the um, the, the quarterly adjusted life year, and we, we look at the cost per quarterly adjusted life year. If the cost for that is above the threshold, and somebody then says, "Well, I'm I'm willing to pay for that. It's going to cost me a hundred thousand pounds for a course of that." I, I don't think you can say to someone, "Well, no, you can't do that." If someone wants to pay to have access to to, to that potentially in, in, in inverted commas, slightly better medicine, then I don't think you can stop people doing that, provided that assessment has taken place where we've said, but these medicines are really quite good and will provide a, a good level of benefit within a reasonable cost framework for, for, for the NHS that the, that, that the NHS we think can afford. Um, and I, I don't have a problem with that, but it's like when you have, when I used to work in hospital pharmacy, we used to have private wards in the in, in the hospital, but you wouldn't get anything different in terms of the, the, the treatment regimens. You'd just be in a nicer setting. You'd have your own remote control telly, you'd have a private room, you'd have maybe slightly better food, and you'd probably have more, better access to more staff. It was almost like the whole, the hotel facilities were better than they were in the NHS ward down, down the corridor. But the, the standard of service provided to, to, the, to the people was, was, was not, not really that, that, that much better. Yeah. It's, inter it's an interesting conversation. I and mean, I'll, I'll, there's a couple other things I want to talk about. But um, yeah, no, I agree. I agree. And I think, I think it's, um, I just think we should bear in mind that, that, that the market yeah. Keeps moving, you know. I think I think in the in the media we often get this narrative that it's you're getting it or you're not getting a certain treatment, but but actually it's yeah. not how it works. It's much it's more complex than that. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, anyway, a um, couple of things that happened in pharmacy recently. So this, do, do you have an opinion on this palm to pee switch of the of the progesterone only pills? Yeah, I mean, again, it comes for me. It comes down to access and equity. So I think again, having the ability to provide access to progesterone-only pill in as many convenient settings as possible has to be a good thing for people, doesn't it? And if you can do yeah. it over the counter, or you can do it through community pharmacies or, or whatever, then great. But my my problem with it is if it's and I don't know how much it is to buy over the counter, but if you've then got to buy it over the counter, there is a you then put a barrier to people, and it goes back to the inverse care law again. The people who potentially most most need access to to, to this will be put off by it if you have, if you introduce a, a charge to it. So again, it's it's a great thing to do, but we need to think about okay, how do we enable access to this in, a, in an equitable way? Yeah, I think I, I um I've I've a huge amount of time for Claire Murphy, who's the chief executive of the I'll get this right British Pregnancy Advisory Service. Yes. Um, yes. I think she I think she speaks really well on this topic, and she 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 goes places where pharmacy don't. Again, I think as a pharmacist profession, we're sort of this is a topic that we're kind of evangelical about. Not this one, but uh, I mean. Um, I'm probably speaking more about the emergency hormonal contraceptive. Yeah. You know, and of course, BPAS, they would be of the opinion that there's there's no need for a for a consultation. And do you know what? I I could be convinced. I I could be convinced of that. 
Um, there's huge vested interests in that market. To sum up um, what Claire's opinion on this was, which cut through the ream of all the other um, quotes that, that we published in the story, um, including you know June Rain from the MHRA and all the all these very important people, Claire said that she she wanted um, to make sure that the process at a pharmacy was not tick boxy and not demeaning to, to women and and you know it just I, I'm not a woman I mean we're we're very badly qualified to talk about this Jonathan but because we're, we're clearly not women but I, you know I, I have a certain amount of empathy and understanding having been on the other side of the counter ticking those boxes over the years um yeah. I, I, it must be it must be pretty hard for a lot of women to go in and get emergency hormonal contraceptives so I I, I, I assume the same for this and the final thing I would say about it is this is absolutely commercial. What a brilliant way to breathe new life into a redundant uh, generic drug. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, um, but, but, I mean, just going back to what you said about tick box and, and, and stuff, I mean, again, I think shared decision making can be done by using sort of a sort of an aid memoir, a tick box. And it's like my, my head hits the desk when I hear people when i hear reports and, and anecdotes of patients who have gone in to see their healthcare professional and they've sat with a list and they've ticked off the list and they haven't had a conversation with the person in a yeah. in a semi-structured way um where it's it's natural and somebody says something you ask open questions and it goes a particular way and then you explore that that thing that they've just said because it's really important to the conversation you don't go okay that's very interesting and then go to the next thing on your check on your tick list to make sure you you've ticked it off it's like and and that's what, what, what i was talking about the skills that are required to have good meaningful conversations with people it's you can't boil it down to just having a checklist that you just go through it has to be natural it has to be a conversation and in order to do that you have to practice your skills to to, to do that so yeah i was actually quite one one of the things we did with the shared decision making guideline that came out at Nice was we we at the same time published an e-learning package that we did with Keele University, which talks about all these different aspects of how you go about having meaningful conversations with people. And also, I don't know if you've seen them, Jonathan, but we, we we've created some uh, avatars which are computer generated patients who you can practice your consultation skills with. And there's a series of scenarios where you put in yeah. certain answers depending on the answer that you put in you get a different response from the from the avatar from the computer per patient and and you're allowed to make mistakes with this person because it's a computer and it doesn't have feelings and you don't destroy your relationship with this person so you can mess it up a little bit and say oh well, i hadn't thought about that go back and try it again and then you know do, do it slightly better next time and there's actually some really good evidence that we've done with it. There's a, a guy at Keel, um, Simon Jackman, who did a PhD using using this stuff. And it's, it makes a huge difference to the, the, the person-centeredness of the consultation. And mm -hmm. people feel a lot more confident, confident about having these person-centered conversations um, around it. And I, I think, I, go, to go back to the point, I think the the... the whether it's hormonal contraception or whether it's uh, morning after pill or whatever, they're really, really good 
sensitive decisions, aren't they? Where the person's values and preferences are really fundamentally important to the choices they make around this. And as you say, as men, <clears throat> sometimes we're not we're not qualified to um, understand what the different choices and values and preferences are of the woman. But what we are able to do is present the risks and benefits to that person in a way that they can understand, in a dispassionate way, that they can then apply their values and preferences to say, well, actually, you know what, based on what you've told me and what I think and what's important to me, this is the decision that I want to come to. So, yeah, definitely, John. John, I, there's there's so much within that. I mean, oh, where do we start? I mean, the the, the whole tick box thing is, yeah, it's, it sort of speaks to where where I'm. You know, I mentioned that I'm I'm not moving away completely from the trade press. I'll always I'll dabble, but yeah, I'm moving pharmacy and practice and what what I do professionally a lot more towards becoming number one a pharmacist led yeah. provider, but also you know, I want to introduce this concept of micro credential into the market as well, and 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 I welcome challenge on that. You know, because I, you know, I'm not sure. Um, I'm not sure how the GPHC feel about all of this, but 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 you know, I don't want to be unkind. But how can I be diplomatic about the regulator who I love dearly? Um, I, I would I would I mean one of the questions I asked Duncan Rudkin when I interviewed him was you know what's the what's the gap between practice and and regulation and we have to we have to recognize there always will be a gap I mean practice will always be ahead of regulation but but I would gently suggest that that gap is maybe a little bit too too big at the moment especially around the prescribing agenda what you talk about there about tick boxy stuff in, in community pharmacy has been going on for years. And the problem is, Jonathan, we miss the person. You know, you miss the person in front of you. So exactly. a, a young woman who's, who's let's take a, a case study, a young woman that's maybe come in, she, she gave birth maybe a year, year and a half ago. She's looking for contraception. The, the supply of you know, it should be like driving a car. You, you should be driving the car automatically and looking at the signs, looking at all around you and what's happening. You shouldn't be worrying about, um, you know, that supply function. You should be thinking, what is going on with that woman? Is she, you know, she just had a baby. Is she, is she feeling okay? Is she, is she sad? Is she doing okay? How's the baby? You know, is, is it thriving? You know, there's a whole... Yeah. patient-centered story there that can only be accessed through excellent consultation skills now Absolutely. i'm on my soapbox here but i'm going to take that back to the to what i think is the current reality in community pharmacy and what i would say is and this is a harsh truth unfortunately when you when you ask you know community pharmacists what training do you do they'll probably do a bit of vaccination training they'll probably do the odd evening CPD session now digitally, and unless they're highly motivated, that's it. There'll be a minority that go on and do their prescribing and never, never prescribe an item, and and so they go on until about ten years into their career, they get bored or burnt out, and then they move to primary care. That's yeah. that's that, that and that's the travesty, and that's the opportunity we're missing, and that's I hope that's where micro credentialing comes in because we're you know I'd like to sort of. Um, give give pharmacists the space and opportunity to demonstrate their competence. I'm not taking responsibility for their practice. 
quite the opposite. I'm pushing them to take responsibility and demonstrate their competence and prove yeah. it. Um, so we can hope, and it, it really talk. That's why I was so keen to speak to you today because that that talks to that Keele University work. It talks to your shared decision making that you've done at Nice. It, yeah. it really dovetails with all of that. But we're not there yet, Jonathan. No, no, no. I, I, I completely agree. It's, it's finding that balance as well between being sort of forced upon the profession by the regulator who says, right, in order for you to stay on the register as a pharmacist, you need to do this. And I think the, the, the balance that, that GPHC have found at the moment is, is a good one. I think there's a bit of reflective practice in there. There's a bit of sort of competency demonstration. There's a bit of peer review and peer support. And I think that's, that's fine. What, what there isn't, unlike the, 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 the medics, is that sort of assessment part. That, yeah. that, that medics have to do, and if it, 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 it's, it's interesting. I was chatting to some friends of mine last week <clears throat> who'd had conversations with airline pilots who have been furloughed during the pandemic, and they're, they're, they're getting to the point where they, they, they're going to go back to being airline pilots again, having not flown a plane for six to 12 months. So in order for them to... So the question to them is, well, okay, how do I demonstrate my competence that I can still fly this jumbo jet? Mm -hmm. um, and of course, what they do is they go in the flight simulator and they, and, and, and they, they do a return to practice course and they, they remind themselves of the theory about how the jumbo jet works. But then they go into the flight simulator and they have to land and, and, and you know, take, take off the plane 10 times in a row in various different situations before they're signed off as being competent to be able to fly the the jumbo jet again um so so we don't have that within healthcare we certainly don't have that within within pharmacy and it's and it and it's about as you said it's finding that balance between not not being too onerous on the individual professional but also importantly how do you demonstrate to the public that this person is is competent to to do what they what 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 you'd expect them to do as a as a healthcare professional? Yeah, um, totally. And I think, I think at the moment, I think as I say, I think the GPHC have just about got the balance right there. Although the the, the onus is very much on the individual to make sure that because you can game the system quite easily, can't you? Yeah, with this the, is the with, with 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 the GPHC, and and you could it, you could do it as a you know half arsedly and just do it as a tick box exercise. But that's not, you're missing the point. There is a there is a professional status and responsibility that comes with being part of a profession. That's the definition of it. And in order to do that, the you're, you, you're not supposed to game the system. You're supposed to do this in a way that's gonna protect the public. Um, so, yeah. I think, yeah, no, it's, it's, it's a fascinating conversation. I think it, if you delve into that, I think prescribing is the front, you know, the front line. It's not the be all and end all, but it is the front line of, of where the profession's at in terms of its progression. And I think the prescribers that have been successful are the ones that have been transplanted into bigger teams, yes. you know, bigger, particularly bigger multidisciplinary teams. Yes. Um, and, and that's so that's so hard to replicate in community. And that's, you know, the beauty of 
the beauty of running my own business, Jonathan, is that I can do whatever the hell I want. And this is what I, this really means a lot to me to to try and build that um, ecosystem of prescribers within community pharmacy so that the, that investment is driven through the pharmacist. Yeah. And, and it is a subtle change that contractors may or may not like, but they yeah. they, they will they will then have to buy that expertise from those pharmacists. Yeah. Um, yeah. And that that's a subtle change in the market. Um, and 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 I think it I think it's I think the time is now you know. Um, but it is. There we go. Anyway, we've 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 spoken for about I don't know it's probably about three hours now, is it? <laughs> <laughs> I, I, we said this last time it's like it's always it's quite a, you're a very easy person to talk to so it's uh <clears throat> these things do go do, do sort of run away from you in terms of in terms of time but um absolutely yeah, it's been, been really good really good conversation jonathan thanks yeah likewise it's been i think we just we both just uh like i think like a lot of pharmacists out there we just we've got this exhausting love for our profession you know it's really it's really the most annoying uh, love that i have in my life you know i just i can't give it up it's so annoying yeah. Uh, yeah. but there you go yeah i mean it's, it's, i think i spoke to you about this last time but my daughter um is doing pharmacy or has just actually graduated from nottingham oh um, wow and starts a pre-reg next week so not only am i passionate about pharmacy as an individual as for myself but my daughter's going to end up being a pharmacist well bless her <clears throat> so and she's very fiercely independent and doesn't want anyone to know who her dad is which is quite right too um because she needs to make her own way and not not be um sort of saddled with oh god yeah jonathan i had a conversation with him once you're not related to him are you <laughs> so, but she, yeah she'll find her own way and she's it, but but just going back to what we were saying about skills and competencies, crikey, she, the amount of work that they've done in their course on clinical skills and um, you know talking to patients about medicines, it's like I, I did none of that when I was an undergraduate. I I, I actually didn't do it until you know, probably five years into my into my career, whereas she's actually walking into her pre-reg, very good, very competent at having conversations with people about about these sorts of things so it's i i feel really really quite positive about the the future of the profession based on conversations that i've had with my daughter and her experience of the, the of the course at nottingham so and i think other courses are, are are using a similar sort of level of clinical skills in there in, in their overall assessment of, of students now so it's good yeah, there's, there's that. You must be very proud um, of her yeah. doing pharmacy. Does she, does she know what sector she's going to work in yet? So she's doing a pre-reg at Chelsea Westminster. Um, so she's going to the hospital, um, and then is thinking about at some point going into primary care. But who knows? Who knows? Yeah. The world is her lobster, as uh, Del Boy would say. As they say, Jonathan. Yeah. Listen, it's it's been a pleasure. Um, let, let's yeah let's do it again um yes. we're we're doing we're, do, we're 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 doing our first ever conference later in the year so um might get you on okay. to have a blather then as well let me know I, I, i'd love to come along yeah 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 good stuff it's great to speak to like-minded folk and uh just have a good bit of a disagreement as well actually it's quite absolutely. refreshing absolutely
it's what it's all about cool right well i'm going to feed my chickens um <laughs> and uh, possibly clean them out uh, but good. yeah what I wish I wish you a good week and uh, yeah this is Monday so what what a lovely way to start the week thanks Jonathan yeah cheers Jonathan see you later all the best.